Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Thursday, January 28. I'm Tom Tilley. And Jan Fran, a very interesting briefing topic today. Indeed, it's a story about a drug dealer and quite a big drug dealer and quite a big story. I would say probably the biggest ever. (laughs) He's far, far bigger than El Chapo or Escobar. Yeah, the man nicknamed Asia's El Chapo has been arrested. This guy is one of the biggest drug dealers in the world, not just in our region. And when you talk about how much methamphetamine flows from the Golden Triangle onto the streets of Australia, well, he's probably responsible for around about 70% of it. Wow, that's huge. And it turns out that an Australian police investigation is what led to the man's arrest. Yeah, in today's briefing, who is Seichi Lop and how did Australian police hunt him down? But first, to the big stories making news today, and we start somewhere in the trans-Tasman bubble. The pause on flights from New Zealand could be extended today after two more people caught COVID in hotel quarantine. Yeah, so those two people, they tested negative twice over 14 days. Then they were found with the more contagious South African strain after leaving the same Auckland hotel as the case earlier this week. Yes, now testing is expected to confirm that later today. The 72-hour pause on flight from New Zealand into Australia, that was due to end at 2pm daylight savings time today, but it does look like it could be extended. Yeah, here's Acting Chief Medical Officer Michael Kidd. The situation is evolving rapidly. We will be following up the details of both of these cases with the New Zealand authorities once further details, including the results of additional testing, are known. Yeah, I think everybody's just being super cautious. Australia has had... 10 days of no community transmission. Uh, Before these cases happened in New Zealand, they had two months of no community transmission. Mm. So no doubt they'd want that to continue. The good news is that Sydney is easing restrictions from Friday. So if you live in the city, you can have 30 people in your home and 50 people outside. An accused pedophile principal has finally touched down on Australian soil after a six-year court battle to bring her home. Malka Leifer allegedly abused three young sisters while headmistress at a Melbourne school between 2001 and 2008. She flew to Israel shortly after the allegations surfaced 13 years ago. Yeah, and for the last six years, Victorian police have been trying to have her extradited to face 74 charges. Last month, uh, Israel's Supreme Court ordered her return. And police were waiting on the tarmac when the 54-year-old finally touched down in Melbourne, where she will front court today. She has always maintained her innocence. And hundreds of thousands of Australians will have to start repaying Centrelink debts worth $4.5 billion from next week. These legitimate debts are understood to be separate from the illegally raised robo-debts. Yeah, the agency froze 1.3 million debts last April as the pandemic hit. And as those debts begin to uh, thaw out, so do the mortgage freezes offered by banks. These mortgage repayment holidays will end at the end of March. And JobKeeper set to wrap up then as well, as will JobSeeker. Yeah, Green Senator Rachel Seawert says that adding the Centrelink recovery at the same time is too much. There's a number of issues that are going to impact on people at the same time as the government is starting to try and reclaim these debts. Yeah, a lot of people say this will be the, the, the real test of the health of the economy. A lot of these measures got us through the, the trickiest points of last year. Yeah, um, but they've been propping us up. That's right, yeah. But I imagine the government would have looked at this pretty closely, you know, with the help of Treasury. And if winding back these measures was going to harm enough people, it would also harm the overall economy and they wouldn't be doing it. 
And two of the world's biggest tennis stars have spoken out in support of Australia's hotel quarantine. Yeah, 23-time Grand Slam champion Serena Williams. Uh, she is due to leave hotel quarantine in Adelaide tonight. Uh, she's told the US late-night talk show host Stephen Colbert that quarantine was worth it. When we come here in Australia, everyone has to quarantine in a room for 14 days and it's insane and it's super intense, but it's super good because after that you can have a new normal like what we were used to last year this time in the United States. Um, so they, they're doing it right. Don't you love it how the tone changes the closer they get to the end of the 14 days? Yeah. She gets it though. I feel like, all right, Serena, you, you, you're picking up what we're putting down here in Australia. Where were we at the start of the 14 days when we're hearing all that negativity? Um, Rafa Nadal has also voiced his support. We can't complain. We only can say thanks to, to Tennis Australia, to the Australian community to welcome us no, and to accept us to come because I know they they have been under very strict measures for, for a lot of months. Yeah, it, it should be noted that Serena and Rafa are actually uh, quarantining in Adelaide. They have still been able to train, so they're not under the same hard lockdown that 72 other players have gone through in Melbourne. And we're hearing a lot of... Um, well, I, I guess complaints and concerns from those players about not being able to leave their hotel rooms. It is refreshing, though, to hear someone like Serena Williams say that she supports the hotel quarantine because uh, that's why we're doing it, so that we cannot have any COVID cases. Once they're out here and they realise how good life is. Yeah, that's right, that you can sort of have a level of normalcy that isn't the case in a lot of other countries. The Oz Open starts Feb 8 and it runs to Feb 21. Yep, looking forward to that. Also looking forward to our briefing topic in just a moment on Asia's El Chapo. So, Jen, I was at home on the couch on Sunday night Mm. watching the TV news and along with the stories about COVID, the weather, Australia Day, was this story that really jumped out at me. An accused drug lord nicknamed Asia's El Chapo has been arrested at an airport in Amsterdam. The AFP had been tracking the Chinese-born Canadian national since at least 2008. So I was like, whoa, hang hang on a minute. He's been compared to El Chapo, Mm. one of the most famous drug lords ever, and he was arrested because of an Australian investigation? Yeah, I mean, that story sort of came and went a little bit, right? Yeah. Which is why... On this episode of The Briefing, we're just going to stop down for a minute. Hang on a minute. Hang on a second. Let's rewind. We're going to ask the question, who is Asia's El Chapo? Say she lop. And how was it that the Australian police nailed him? I would say probably the biggest ever. (laughs) He's far, far bigger than El Chapo or Escobar. That's Sean Williams describing say she lop. And he knows about criminals. He hosts a podcast called The Underworld. The Southeast Asian methamphetamine market is worth an estimated 60 to $70 billion US. That would put his share of it at around poof, about $25 billion. Um, wow. So El Chapo's $2 billion uh, estimated. So that gives you some idea of how much bigger the company, as they call it, is is compared to a lot of the Mexican and South American cartels. So this is clearly a massive coup for Australian federal police here, especially because they believe that this man is responsible for, get this, 70% of all narcotics that reach Australia. Yeah, and the reason he isn't as famous as El Chapo or Pablo Escobar is that his organisation, the company, wasn't out there committing mass acts of open violence in the streets. They definitely kept a lower profile, didn't they? So to find out who he is and how the AFP 
got him arrested, we're going to speak to Nine's Chris Yorman. On the Mekong River at the point where the borders of Thailand, Laos and Myanmar meet. Right in the, uh, what, what is known as the Golden Triangle. A place long associated with the drug trade. So that's Chris reporting for 60 Minutes from Southeast Asia, where he travelled to track down the large-scale meth factories. Chris, thanks for joining us. How big a deal was this arrest on Friday in Amsterdam? Well, this guy is one of the biggest drug dealers in the world, not just in our region. And when you talk about how much methamphetamine flows from the Golden Triangle onto the streets of Australia, well, he's probably responsible for around about 70% of it. We know that Australians spend about $8 billion a year on that drug, and we know that for a fact because that's through the tests that we now do on on sewerage and that uh, he is one of uh, the most wanted people in Australia, we know all the harm that is done by methamphetamine in Australia, but it's done throughout the region. And given they generate around about $70 billion worth of profit, you know, the entire drug trade a year, it helps to corrupt the entire region and, in fact, destabilises some countries. So uh, this man is a big cog in a very, very big wheel. It's interesting, though, that he's not as famous as some of those Mexican or Colombian drug lords. Tell us more about this man. Where did he come from and how did he get so high up in the drug trade? So Sei Chalop's originally born in China. He's 56 years old, but he's a Canadian national. He went to Canada at about 1988 and he was in fact convicted in 1998 in the United States of drug trafficking charges and sentenced to nine years in jail. He then begged for leniency, he said he'd turn around his life, said he wanted to open up a little shop or perhaps a restaurant, and uh, he was then returned to Canada. Uh, he left Canada and then went back, would appear to his old ways. And what happened over time was that uh, he was part of a Chinese triad, and it appears that an association of Chinese triads essentially got together to run the Southeast Asian drug trade. There are about five of them, and he appears to be the figure at the top of that organisation, which is is an arrangement between triads. And we know a lot about the South American ones because they're so violent, but there's so much money in what's happening in Southeast Asia that, frankly, uh, these organisations have decided it's much better to work together and to corrupt governments to help them towards their end. So uh, they've set up an extraordinarily well-organised network uh, of logistics and supply, which keeps countries not just like Australia, but New Zealand and Japan and through the Philippines, uh, uh, Thailand, supplied with uh, a just simply enormous amount of methamphetamine. And in poorer countries, there's a, a drug called Yaba, or a sort of madness pill, uh, which is sold on the streets, which causes enormous problems as well, mm. uh, which is also cooked up in these drug labs in Myanmar. And you went to Myanmar to investigate his operation. What did you find there? Yeah, I wanted to go to the source. And one of the things about Myanmar is that it's a country that essentially been at civil war for around about the last 70 years. There's large swathes of the country which the government doesn't actually control, and there are a bunch of militia groups that uh, that are in control of it. One of the best organised is called the Wa State Army. And what happens is that precursor chemicals come across the border from China. Uh, the Wa State Army then turns them into methamphetamine, and it's built its army on the basis of the fact that it sells drugs. Now, this is not a new trade, by the way. You go back to, um, you know, just after the Second World War, 
And the, the same thing was essentially happening and uh, governments were involved in it, but it was opium there. Methamphetamine is a much more profitable exercise because you don't have to have big fields to cultivate it in. You can cook it up in these jungle labs. You know, you can, you can spend about $1,800 making a kilo of this stuff and sell that same kilo on the streets of Australia for around about $670,000. So you can lose an enormous amount of this drug along the way and still make an enormous profit. So what was the scale and nature of his operation here in Australia? Like, what was he trafficking and who was he supplying? So methamphetamine was what's being trafficked. And so what happens is that it's cooked up in, in Myanmar and all the way down the drug tail. Don't forget that this... So what happens is it, it starts there, the drug is made, and then some of the profits begin to be laundered in the casinos, which have sprung up in the Golden Triangle. So Myanmar, Laos, uh, Cambodia... Uh, Thailand have all been affected by this as the money is washed through, the drugs go down the logistics trail, uh, government officials are corrupted by it. Uh, it makes its way to Australia through uh, you know, numerous means. It comes by sea sometimes, it comes uh, through logistics chains and, and then it's brought to Australia. The drugs are sold on the streets here and the profits, again, laundered back in multiple ways. But one of the ways that we know that this particular organisation was working was through Crown Casino, through the junket operations there. So they had organised this end of the operation to launder the money back in part uh, through uh, the casino network. Yeah, so this implicates Crown Casinos, which is already having massive dramas. There's been a lot of focus on those junkets where essentially um, they bring out high net worth individuals from Asia to gamble in their casinos. How devastating are these revelations for Crown and their operations? Well, it means that they are knowingly or unknowingly in league with organised crime and an organised crime network which brings misery not just to the streets of Australia. People die because of this drug, don't forget. You know, the violence surrounding methamphetamine Australia is well known, the damage that it's doing in our community. But it's not just causing misery in Australia, it's causing misery through Southeast Asia and it's destabilising the entire region. And governments are involved in this. One of the things that you cannot get away from if you go to these places is the fact that governments must be knowingly involved in this. How is it that 70% of the precursors that uh, make the methamphetamine that come onto the streets of Australia come out of legal drug manufacturers in China and there's never been a border interception between China and Myanmar? Yeah, and it seems like a massive coup for the Australian Federal Police, given the global scale of his operations, for our police to to get to this point of arresting him seems incredible. How did the actual arrests go down? Was it very dramatic or was he just about to, you know, hand over his boarding pass and they just put some handcuffs on him? Yeah, look, and I don't have details on how that went went, went about. I'm assuming that it probably was uh, rather, you know, undramatic. Although I've got to say there's been reports, there are lots of different reports about Zay Chai Lop and how he travels. And it was it was reported, you know, a year or two ago that he always travelled with a, a posse of Thai kickboxers around him. So, you know, <laughs> perhaps it was very dramatic. But, but I'm assuming he was tapped on the shoulder as he's handing over his passport. Chris, can you tell us how the investigation has began? Because it's been more than a decade in the making, hasn't it? Yeah, and so the way it began is in, in a small way, really, back in 2011 when the police got onto, you know, a drug trafficker 
who who clearly was answering to someone much higher up the chain than himself. So, and they began to follow him, and then they began to get more and more interceptions because they had they had tracked uh, the way that he was working inside Australia and were managed managing to be able to intercept some of his deals, and that did draw the attention of what they were picking up in some of the the traffic from um, you know the, the the recordings that they were hearing of you know the big boss not being happy about the number of interceptions. One of the, the, the Sachops Lops business model, which made him so successful, was that if your drugs and don't forget he deals with uh, other people in Australia, like you know the biker gangs and uh, and the like who who are involved in the drug trade, and so if a shipment was intercepted at any stage, he'd offer to replace it. The company, which is the name of the organisation we're talking about, the company would replace that because the trade was so lucrative, which is why they managed to corner the market so well. But there were so many interceptions happening in Australia that, that he was clearly getting agitated. And then there was contact made with him and some meetings that were held, you know, around the region, one in particular in Thailand, where the Australian Federal Police were able to see him at a resort with uh, some of the other uh, lieutenants of this organisation and began to piece together the different parts of the organisation so what's going to be the impact of this arrest? Will it change the way this syndicate operates? Will less drugs hit the streets in Australia? And will this man be extradited here to face justice? It'll be interesting to see what charges are brought against him, what evidence the police believe that they have to be able to convict him in an Australian court. But really, what effect would it have on the region? I think, you know, he's an important cog He's at the top of this organisation. As people point out, though, he's known as Brother Three. So who are Brothers One and Two? And the operation is so large and involves so much corruption with so many governments that I think that he will simply be replaced by whoever else comes along. I mean, the most important thing that he could supply to the Australian government, if he was prepared to talk, would be intelligence about the way that this operation does work in total because we've really just got shadowy bits of it. But my you know, understanding from having spoken to police when they've caught others is the level of fear inside these operations is so great that uh, people rarely cooperate with police when it comes to giving them more information. So that was Chris Yulman telling us about Seichi Lop, a drug lord compared to El Chapo. An incredible story, Jan, and it will continue to be an incredible story, especially if he does come here to Australia to face trial in our courts. Yeah, I mean, the investigation's been going on for a decade, but somehow this might just be the beginning. Stay tuned. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we'll take a look at the federal government's new COVID-19 vaccine awareness campaign. Will it actually change anyone's mind? A Podcast One production.